Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 306, and today's guest is Emily Glass, CEO at Synchro. Synchro is an all-in-one professional services automation and remote monitoring and management platform for managed service providers that be in MSPs. The company's backed by Mainsail Partners, a growth equity firm. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how having a broad range of experience across different functional areas helped position Emily into a CEO role, Emily's background story, and all the details about her career path across product management, customer experience, and more, what is an MSP, all the details on Synchro and how they are helping their customers run a profitable business, advice on building a diverse workforce, some of the challenges she has tackled as the company's CEO, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you may want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our target audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to all of our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at for all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Emily. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because I feel like we go way back. I forget the first time we connected. Um, yeah. I've been back, back up a five time frame, which we're going to yeah, talk a lot about. about. Right? Yeah. So before the I'm 20s. Really, I know. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. So I'm excited to talk to you. I think this podcast is long overdue. Um, so we're going to go through your background story and obviously all the great things that you're up to at Synchro. But uh, before we get into that, I did want to talk about your, you know, just more of a, like a high level overview of your career. Cause when I looked at your professional journey, you've had lots of different roles from engineering products, customer success. So uh, operations. So there's all these mm -hmm. different pieces of your journey that you've traveled in. And I thought it was interesting to see how as a CEO, you know, how did those different paths ultimately lead you to where you are now? And I did notice you had a, a post on LinkedIn just recently that I also wanted to tie in, like, what, what what piece do you wish you had in addition to the different pieces that you were able to, to Got lead to experience your directly? Yeah. yeah, I was I was really fortunate to get to like experience a lot of different departments, roles, perspectives directly. So I think, you know, being open to opportunities definitely helped me throughout my career sort of embrace a new challenge and be like, well, I have never done hardware operations and like managed a warehouse before, but I guess, you know, if not me, who else, I guess I'll try it and I'll learn something. Right. So I kind of approached each of those different opportunities that way. And I think, yeah, financial, uh, the financial aspect, I really started to get an appreciation for at Backupify because that was my first executive role. Uh, but my knowledge has kind of expanded from there. And again, it's just another perspective on the business and how do the decisions I'm making in my group or in my role personally or as a leader contribute to the overall health of the company or the journey of the company. It's just like another another perspective on the decisions that you're making, really. And do you think that was your intent? Like, hey, I want to eventually be a CEO of a tech company and you built your path strategically to get there. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I didn't set, uh, set out to be a CEO. I set out to be a product manager for sure early in my career. And, and we can talk through that that part of the journey. Um, I never really uh, set out to be a CEO. Someone else asked me this the other day. Like, did you? how did you do this? Or did you intend to do this? And I thought about it. 
And I, I, I had it as a possibility in my mind. So I definitely looked for opportunities to increase my leadership skills in the hopes that maybe that could be a, an option. But I had equal sort of proponents and uh, naysayers or people who were warning me against actually becoming a CEO <laughs> along my journey. So I was never quite you know, convinced or ultimately like super confident that the CEO role was one I wanted to pursue. Um, but I'm fortunate that I had all those opportunities and I got all the skills so that when the opportunity came along, I was able to, to do it. I think I always loved to learn. So I think that was the propelling notion. And when the CEO opportunity came along, that was what made it like a good fit is that like, oh yeah, this is the next obvious thing for me to try and see if I can do. Perfect. All right, well, let's rewind the clock. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Oh, we're getting deep, Keith. We're going back. Yes. <laughs> Foundational um, years. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Montreal. I lived there in, and got my first job there. So I, I went to school at McGill um, and uh, in computer engineering. It was one of the first sort of years that they offered that course. So a good mix of like hardware and software engineering back in the day. Uh, and so building and, and also writing code uh, was part of the curriculum. And then, um, yeah, I moved to Boston and in my early in my career uh, through a job opportunity. And as a child, uh, I, I was thinking about this. I'm a little I was an introvert for sure. I'm still sort of naturally an introvert, uh, but I got a chance to do a lot of things, which I think led to me being sort of open to opportunities and wanting to learn. I think like three main things that really helped me even to this day in my career journey are music, art, and soccer, which I all started around five years old and was lucky enough to be involved in those things. And people people at Synchro will hear me talk about soccer a lot because I think it's a really good foundation for teamwork and how, you know, you can't do it all. Any sort of team sport, really, um, you know, we'll, we'll teach you that. Art has taught me a lot about sort of being open to destroying your creation and starting starting fresh and knowing that that's going to be okay. Maybe you'll end up with something better. Uh, and music definitely taught me discipline. Just the discipline that like, if you do 30 minutes every day or whatever you can commit to, it will add up to a, a talent that, you know, brings you joy and, and, uh, and that you'll, you'll be on that journey of continuous improvement, which I think all of those things have been foundational to my leadership journey for sure. That's awesome. I love that, that answer. That's actually like something I'm like, as I was listening, I'm like, this is fantastic stuff that I, uh, you know, I'm always looking for nuggets to to share with my two daughters that one's in college, one's in high school that are inspirational. And I, I thought that was a great way of outlining those three different uh, criteria. So you talked about product management. So product management, you know, I, that was something that I focused on in terms of recruiting and mm. um, doing it for as long as I did, I realized, you know, no one typically sets out leaving college thinking, I want to be a product manager because no one knows that that's even a job, that's a career, yeah. that's a path. Yeah. So how did you figure that out that that was, you know, was it something that you did learn at McGill that product management was a thing or like, how did you evolve into that path? Yeah, I think this was like a, a necessity is the motherhood of invention or whatever that expression is. I think I was in computer engineering. I liked computers. I liked technology, uh, but I did not necessarily uh, like coding all day. Uh, I found it fascinating. I'm very logical, so I appreciated it. Uh, but at the end of my degree, I realized I need something more. Like I won't be thoroughly happy if I just have to sit at a desk all day and code. And so I started to look for adjacent roles 
where I could use the technical skill set, but not just be coding. And I was lucky that one of my first jobs was in a sort of post-sales support, like implementation kind of role where I needed the technical skills. I went on site, I like configured software and made it work and integrated things, but I also had to deal with the people. Uh, right on uh, on site on my own and sort of like you know whatever they were feeling all their feelings about what was happening it could be joy because I you know got it set up it could be frustration because you know I I arrived too late and um you know they were already at that point but whatever it was I found that part really fascinating which I think is what led me to think about well where can I interface with people and use my technical skills which product management is one of sort of the obvious career paths once I started to work in a tech company um, and evaluate the different roles, I think product management was was sort of an obvious uh, fit for me. So it's, it's, you know, you recognize that there's a opportunity in product management, but it's another thing for people to actually enter that space, because if you don't have the experience, right? So so what what were you working on initially? Like what companies, you know, took that chance of you as a product manager? Yeah, good question. Um, so it was at Brightcove, actually, and I and I kind of designed that intentionally. Um, when I joined, it was a very small company, around 40 people, and I joined the tech support group. It wasn't my first job out of college, but it was one of the first, and I knew it was a startup. Obviously, I knew it was small, and I discussed the opportunity with them. I said, look, I'll take the tech support job. I'll learn the product. I'll learn all about the customers, and as we're growing and you're building out the product management group, I want that opportunity. So I spent about a year in the tech support role, learned everything I needed, learned about all the people who were working there, built relationships, and then joined the product management team from there. So it was kind of a uh, an agreement we had when I when I joined the company, but looking for a company that is growing and will it is aligned to your career goals, I think is really important. So that worked out for me for sure. Yeah, I didn't realize you were that early at, at Brightcove. That's a great mm -hmm. team, obviously great company. Yes, I still have a lot of folks in my network from Brightcove, really, really smart, talented individuals who started the company, but who I got to work with over the years. Um, and I learned a lot about product management there, uh, as well as design and usability. That's where I really started to get into that and work with uh, work with really talented designers as well. All right. So then you spent some time at Akamai, which is another great company, but I really wanted to focus on, um, you know, Backupify. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I highlighted before, I think that's where we originally uh, connected. Um, so talk about Backupify, like what stage was the company at when you joined your role initially? Yeah. So Backupify um, was around that same size as uh, as Brightcove when I joined. I was in the 40th, maybe more like the 50th employee, like in that range, but still early on. And I joined uh, to, to run product management and design and build out that team. And it was a really interesting moment because we were transitioning from being a consumer uh, like a B2C company, consumer focused company with like photo backups and blogging backups and stuff like that to an enterprise focused company with backup for like Salesforce and Google apps. And so it was an interesting time to see like an early stage company that had gotten a lot of success in one realm with consumers and how to like translate that as we were seeing interest from enterprises and like jump make that jump without, you know, falling, <laughs> falling in the crack at the, at, uh, you know, at the same time. So uh, it was interesting from that perspective. It was interesting to work with Rob May um, really closely because I was on the exec team. So maybe it was my first, you know, closest experience working with CEO. So, you know, that was definitely fundamental in leading me to this role today. And it was my first executive role. So um, a lot of firsts. And again, small company growing quickly, lots of opportunity for sure. 
Yeah, and you mentioned it did pivot from consumer to more B2B, which so you were it was the product was backing up Google Apps and, and Salesforce back up. Correct. So so making that pivot, like as a product manager leader, like how did you have to think about the market? You know, because I'm sure companies at the time were like, Google backs up the apps. Why would I need this type of product? So you were kind of entering a market that the customer didn't know that they necessarily needed. Yeah, there was a lot of market education for sure, but I think it was easier or at least we had confidence because we had customers already using the product. We didn't have to go, find, like we got pulled into that space, right? And and from the consumer side, we had the, the interest from like other, other companies to offer our product. So uh, it wasn't like a hypothesis. It was real. We had paying companies using the product. So it was, we had some conviction about the market education. I would say- the hardest part about that one is um, actually an emotional one where the company is actually kind of emotionally invested in the B2C product and the audience that we're serving and you know people who were hired were brought on to build that initial product and have been doing that for X number of years and like really invested in that concept and the, the problems they're solving and trying to get them to see that like there is this, this enterprise, this other company, this other audience we could be serving with the products and to get equally as excited about that um, and, and not be afraid of that transition was actually the hardest part of, of that jump, that leap. Okay, so over time, the company scaled and obviously was successful and exited to Datto, which yes. eventually went on to uh, go public. So talk about your professional journey, because this is, you know, um, you know, a, a company that uh, had success and saw an exit, and then it was a good fit, meaning, you know, sometimes the acquisition doesn't necessarily work out and there's a sunset and people move on, but you were there for a, a, a long time and you could, you worked into different functional areas. Yeah, I think I was lucky. I don't know if you, if the audience <laughs> is hoping I have good tips for surviving an acquisition. I'm not sure. I can give you what worked for me, but I think there's a lot of luck in in those things um, because there's never quite you know telling exactly how it's going to go, right? You don't, you know, when when Dato acquired Backupify, I mean, I didn't know what an MSP was. I didn't know what Dato was. I didn't know where where Dato was. Like, I mean, you don't get to pick the company you're going to work for, essentially. And Dato was a much larger company than Backupify, so it's a matter of like navigating uh, a whole new job that's basically been handed to you. So you didn't get to pick it. You, you just like wake up and now you're like working for another company and your job is like maybe gone or, or not entirely clear, right? Like how do I fit here? Uh, and being an engineer, you, you might imagine I, I probably wasn't the most like relationship savvy person at the time in my career. So I thought like, well, you know, I'll do a good job and I've done a good job and I'll, I'll figure it out. But I made, uh, you know, I think, I made a commitment early on that like, I'm going to try, I'm going to go, I'm going to try build relationships. I'm going to see if this can work. I didn't, I didn't choose the scenario. I wasn't unhappy, but I mean, I didn't, I didn't choose it. Uh, so let's like, let's investigate. Let's find out like, what is data? What are MSPs? Uh, who works here? Uh, where might I fit? Where are the interesting challenges? And so I kind of committed to myself to try it for at least like 90 days um, and then, you know, in increments after that, check in and see like, how's it going? So I think it's just a process of navigation a lot of the times on both sides, right? Whether you're acquiring or acquired, uh, it's a, it's a, you have to find the right fit for, for you in that new scenario. All right. So we, we talked about your progression. So, at, you know, you, you eventually 
you know, we're running a customer support group of 150 people. And you talked about, you know, hardware and, you know, software. And, you know, so it's, it, it was a totally different thing from what Backupify was doing. So how did you learn to, to take on these challenges and thrive in that more executive role? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it came from, like I said, that open mindset of like, I will do, you know, maybe I haven't done it before, but I'll, I'll kind of try anything and I'm here to learn. So the first role that I had at Data was head of training, um, which I hadn't run a training team before, but I had run a support team. I had built out knowledge base, you know, like I had built out videos about how to use a product. So I had some, some fundamental concepts and I figured I'm a product manager. I can find the audience for training and translate their needs into training courses, right? It's kind of a similar skill set. So um, I built out the training team at Datto. Uh, and I think just that openness to say like, well, I, I had one employee that when I first started, <laughs> I think they didn't know what to do with me, honestly, after the acquisition. <laughs> so like, yeah, we'll give her this and see what happens. Uh, yeah, so I had one employee. Um, I still know him to this day. Very nice fellow. We built a really great training team over the first like year that I was there and it was really successful. We were having a lot of fun. We were um, really helping our MSPs learn the product and learn like learn about about Datto and how to use it to their advantage. So we like, you know, we built something that was valuable to our customers. And I think I used that time also to build relationships with the other, you know, leaders at Datto or just people at Datto and start to learn more about like, yeah, what was this product? What was this company and how could I fit in? And I was just lucky enough to, um, for the CEO to need a support leader at an opportune, opportune moment after he had gotten to know me a little bit. Uh, and I think I was like in the right place at the right time. Um, and yeah, he, he came to me one day and said, we'd like you to lead the support team of like 150 people which was like, you know, 10x larger than any group I had ever led in my entire life. So I said, I'm going to need, I'm going to need a minute to think about that one. Let me get back to you. <laughs> Sounds great. And part of me was excited and part of me was terrified. Uh, but, you know, I have, you mentioned my backup of uh, my Brightcove network. Bob Mason was a manager of mine at um, Brightcove, still very active in Boston tech scene, uh, amazing human. And I went to him and I'm like, I have this opportunity, but you know, I have all these things I don't know. And he goes, look, like just write down all the things you're not sure about and, and walk, walk through like what could be solutions. Um, and so I went through that process and I went back to the CEO of Datto and I said, look, here's what I need to be successful. Um, what, like what, first of all, what are you looking for? I think you're looking for this. Are we on the same page? And he was like, yes. I'm like, okay, great. To do that, I need the following. Uh, and I asked for a few things that were going to help me be successful in the role, things I were like, I was worried I wasn't going to be able to do. Um, one of them was like a lot of commuting to the headquarters of Datto, which was in Norwalk, and I was still living in Boston. Um, so tools like just to make that easier, um, we came to an understanding. And so I took the role. So I think that's really important when you're offered something that's outside your comfort zone to like acknowledge that up front is a lot easier than to like struggle through it. And in three months or six months, your boss is like, hey, you suck at this, this part. And you're like, yeah, I mean, I knew that. <laughs> I could have told you that three months ago. I like to just get that out on the table every time someone's like, well, you try this thing. I'm like, well, I could try that. Like, here's where I'm good. Here's the thing or the you know things I haven't done before, but I'll give it, you know, so I'm going to need help or I'm going to need a resource uh, to fill that gap in. And it's much smoother that way in the future. That's great. Great advice. Yeah. All right. So what did you do after? 
Um, so, I mean, at Datto, my role just expanded. I, I took the, I, I had the support team. I learned a lot about MSPs that way. So I learned, you know, what they were struggling with because, because I was on the customer support side, I could see like, what were their pain points? What were they struggling with in their business? What were they struggling with with the product? So I really think uh, a good understanding of who the customer is, no matter what product you're working on is really, really important for any role in the company, right? It doesn't really matter what department you're in or, or what level you're at or whatever you're doing day to day. It really, really helps inform your decision process. So I got to learn all of that. And then um, as Datto grew, because it was a really fast growing company, there were again, tons of opportunities to take on new challenges. So like I said, I worked on the hardware operations side doing like inventory management. I can remember New Year's Eve going in, New Year's Day, sorry, going in and like running through the warehouse and checking all the devices and scanning everything. Um, and yeah, I got I got that exposure. Um, we, uh, we merged with a company called Autotask uh, and I got to lead that integration. So Vista, uh, Vista was behind um, that that merger, uh, and I got to, from an executive perspective, lead that. And then I even got to be the chief product officer of Datto uh, before before I left there. So I got to see again lots of different sides of the company, learn a ton of things I did not know, and work with a ton of great people um, in the process. So it was it was really exciting. Oh, it's, I mean, just it's it's amazing to see a company that's in this super high growth path, but to see how you leveraged and created opportunities to do different things and expand your career, and then it came full back, full circle back to leading product for the company. Yeah, I think what's really good about being excited and open for opportunities is that people will then give them to you. <laughs> like a lot of people are fine with the status quo and they like to be comfortable. So when a new problem arises, they're often not the first people that, you know, that are tapped to do something new. I think because I was viewed as like a problem solver, I got a lot of problems. Some people are like, oh, don't give me a problem. Like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work or like, I don't know. But I was always like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. Let me see. Like, that sounds like a total disaster. <laughs> you know, but how was that known that. internally? Like, like, were you the one raising your hand saying, oh, that sounds interesting? Or was it because... They gave you the training, you you nailed that. And I was like, okay. And then they gave you something else and you nailed that. You know, like you just build that credibility or was it you were just, hey. I'll more the latter, it. more the latter. I, I rarely was like, I need, you know, I need more problems to solve. <laughs> <laughs> need more work. Uh, and that didn't happen so often, maybe once. Uh, but no, most of the time it was like, give, give you a challenge. Oh, oh, you solved that pretty well. Okay, well, here's the next challenge. Maybe a bit bigger, maybe a different type. Oh, okay, you solved that. You're bored. Okay, here's like the next thing. Um, me me bored is a bad thing. So maybe also they were just trying to keep me busy. Uh, but yeah, more more the the building up of credibility and incrementally proving that I could handle, I could handle the challenges. All right, so what'd you do after data? After Datto. So after Datto, I took a little bit of time, but then I, I was gonna I was gonna have a nice travel year and then the pandemic hit. So I was like, well, I better I better go back to work because I'm not gonna travel right now. Uh, so I landed at a company called Alice. 
as COO, um, they were a marketing, they are a marketing B2B platform. Um, and I was able to participate in the Series B fundraising, which I had never done in any of my prior roles in such a sort of direct way. So that was a really cool learning experience. I got to build out some of the leadership team there um, and work closely with the CEO, Greg. So it was, it was an awesome experience. Again, just building my leadership skills on the fundraising side. Uh, and then the opportunity at Synchro came along and I couldn't, I couldn't say no to a CEO sort of gig. So that's how I ended up at, at Synchro. Well, how did you get involved with Synchro? Because you were a member of the, the company's board initially mm -hmm. before taking the CEO role. So how did you end up, you know, being like on boards of companies or on the board of Synchro? Yeah, I think, um, you know, so Synchro found me uh, and I think, uh, or I know, uh, you know, they were looking for someone with MSP domain experience and the MSP industry is still pretty niche. I think most people think of it as, you know, a kind of a niche industry. So finding someone with that experience to have on a board is, is rare if they're, cause they're usually they're involved in an actively involved in an MSP company. Uh, so it was just fortuitous timing that I was at Alice, but I had that MSP background. Um, it was something that they were looking for because they are, they were, and are a fast growing company as well. So I think it was just a good fit for, for my skill set. And um, I think that's, you know, a good tip for looking for board work is look for companies that where your skill set directly applies. Maybe it's a domain that they're struggling with. Maybe it's the actual industry that they're in or, you know, that their product is serving. Uh, but that that's definitely what worked for me. Well, let's define that, you know, acronym. So what is a managed service provider? <laughs> yes. MSP? Well, there you go. It's a managed service provider. Uh, I think, you know, in layman's terms or in, in simplest terms, it's really a trusted advisor for small, medium businesses for everything they need for IT and tech. So if you think about like a dentist's office, just as an example, they don't have the need for a full-time IT admin, nor can they pay a full-time IT admin. It just doesn't make any sense, but they need computers. They need imaging software. You know, things go wrong and they need troubleshooting. They need a phone system. Like they need a ton of technology to run their business, online bookings, whatever they need. Um, and so an MSP is who they would contract with to provide that service to them month over month. So typically MSPs uh, approach a business, you know, like a dentist office, five, five users, quote unquote, with all the machines. And they'll say, yeah, for a certain fee every month, I will service all of your needs. Your Windows things need updating. Great. I'll come and do that. Your, your server breaks down and you can't access your teeth images. <laughs> I will come. Your dental images. I will come and fix that machine. Um, so there's some break fix component, but there's also like, oh, you need a new video surveillance because you know, you're worried about security, I can install that and monitor that for you. So there's this recurring relationship, this advisor relationship that they develop. Um, and the MSP really enables uh, the, the business to be successful by empowering them with the technology that they're delivering. Got it. Okay. So, and so what does Synchro do though within that industry? Yes. Great question. Okay. So Synchro is an MSP platform. So think about an MSP. They have two parts of their business. One, they actually have to do the technology things, whatever that is, right? Install the OS, uh, monitor the device. Um, they have to, uh, you know, buy hardware, whatever it is. They have all of that delivering the, the solutions to their end customer. That's one part of the business. And the second part of the business is they're operating a business. They have employees. They have tax statements to prepare. They have invoices to send. They have tickets coming in. So there's these two parts to running an MSP. And Synchro is the platform that lets them do all of that. So we have ticketing. 
um, like a Zendesk, for example. So you can track, you know, issues that are happening, resolve them, correspond with your customers. That is something that um, Synchro does under the PSA solution, professional services automation, which is an industry term. Um, and then we have an RMM, remote monitoring and management, which is an agent that runs on all of the devices that an MSP is supporting and tells them like, what is the OS version? It patches it automatically. It looks at third-party applications that's installed. So it gives them access to any of the devices that the end customer is using so that they can like manage them and make sure that they're running properly and smoothly and then troubleshoot anything that's happening. So those are two fundamental things that an MSP, any MSP needs. Um, they need other things on top of that as well, but that's kind of the foundation of, a, of an MSP platform is the PSA and the RMM tools to run their business. And that's yeah, what it like, provides. Well, if you're an MSP, this is like life blood, so like this is It's like your core so operating yeah, core. system for your business. Yeah, you can't really, you know, invoice, deliver a solution or manage anything if you don't have a PSA and an RMM. Okay, so when you came in as CEO, the founding CEO had been with the company for a while. So like, what was that transition like of you coming in? I mean, definitely an advantage of you being mm -hmm. involved in the company as a board member, not just an outside CEO coming in that people are like, who's this person? But still yeah. the founding CEO, like replacing somebody, that's a, that's a big move. Yeah, um, that um, that was <laughs> it was interesting for sure. I, I agree. Like being on the board gave me insight into the company and into the leadership team directly because I met them uh, at board meetings. So I had sort of more insight from that perspective, and then they knew me as well. But you know, it's fairly it's a fairly limited interaction with a board member a lot of times. So there was still a lot to learn. I would say. I think a lot of the success of that transition is really a credit to Robert, the former CEO, because I know, you know, you can have a CEO that doesn't want to let go or that stands in the way somehow or, you know, consciously or not. And Robert is just a wonderful person um, who knew, like he, he was ready to, to, to move on and do other things. Uh, he was, he was um, involved in the process and he was like happy to set me up for success, which I think is like the, the biggest factor of that being a sort of smooth transition for sure. All right. So for context, like what's the kind of the, the state of the state of the company, like, you know, size, number of employees, whatever details you can share. Absolutely. So we are a fully remote company, number one. Uh, so we have employees mostly in the U.S., but uh, a little bit all across the world, but mostly U.S. centric. Um, we have about 100 people that work at Synchro today, uh, a lot in sort of R&D engineering and product, a lot in tech support, right? Because we have to support, uh, we are a SaaS product. So we have all of the running in the cloud and 24-5 support and all of the things that you would expect because we're supporting small businesses uh, who need to use our software. Um, and uh, we're always we're growing, as I mentioned before. So we're always recruiting. If people want to check the website. I don't want to say any specific role because it, you know, it changes. Don't want to date, don't want to date your podcast. But um, yeah, there's <laughs> there's always open roles. There's open roles right now. I I, I guarantee it <laughs> if you go check the website. So what have been the, uh, like, like running a remote company, like obviously that people are getting a lot of experience with that over the past few years, but like, 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 how do you like keep a culture, like a vibrant culture intact of running you know a remote company? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I was lucky that Synchro has been remote since 2017. So it wasn't a pandemic induced remote state. It was, it was prior to that a conscious decision. And I think that really has helped us uh, in that like 
people who join Synchro know that that's what they're signing up for. And we can also make sure that candidates, you know, understand what's required in that environment and that they're a good fit. So I think that's, that's one thing that we haven't had to deal with. We haven't had to like transition or deal with that transition the last few years. It's been remote only um, from the start, uh, so to speak. Um, I think what's been challenged, you know, it, it's challenging to maintain that connection when you don't get to see people every day. So we found ways to cope with that. Um, one, because we've been remote from the beginning, we don't have a lot of like synchronous dependencies or dependencies about, upon being in the same place. So I think all of our tooling, our process, the way that we communicate um, is designed for a remote company, which you know makes, makes it easier to get information out, number one. Uh, number two, we do try to get people together when we can. So we have people that are in the same area, they'll go for dinner um, or we'll run an event or we'll go for an exec sort of offsite and then we'll invite local employees to join for a dinner. So we find ways to build in in-person time when we can to foster those connections. Um, a lot of people have worked at Synchro for a while. So I think that's easier also to build. We don't have like a ton of people going in and out all the time or, you know, short tenured folks. So I think it, it's easier to kind of keep momentum around the culture that way. And then I think number three is that the founders, and then I've tried to uphold this in my tenure too, have always been sort of willing to try uncomfortable things and see if they work. And I think um, that has allowed us to like experiment with different different conversations, different tools, different ways of working and, and different aspects of the culture and really push the envelope. And I think um, that like in some way that's actually helped us maintain like an identity despite being remote and, and, and like not, not so cold, but a more sort of warm like personality. Uh, so we have a lot of like uncomfortable conversations at work. We do believe in like sort of making people better not just talking about the business all the time. Uh, so we we talk about um, all sorts of things in the office uh, or on the Zooms uh, and, uh, you know, do things like pay transparency, do sort of um, newer things in the industry and like roll them out and are willing to like experiment with those things and see how they go. Well, to expand on that a little bit. Um, so your career's page on your website talks a lot about how you know you you believe in a very diverse and inclusive workforce and you know a lot of companies i think say that but maybe some don't always follow through on that yet if you look at your linkedin your posts and the different things it's it's, it's something that's very meaningful to you as well so if it's mm -hmm. coming from leadership that means it's probably instilled top down in the organization so like what advice would you have for founders on you know building a more diverse and inclusive workforce yeah. Um, my, I think the, the main advice is like, don't be afraid, <laughs> just don't, don't avoid it. Um, I've heard so many in, in my career, so many excuses from folks about, and, and like, they sound very plausible and like, you know, sure it is hard to recruit. It, it does take longer or it might be, you know, hard in that specific position. Definitely. I get it. Um, but don't like, don't avoid it. Um, I think, uh, it, 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 it is possible. Um, and like at Synchro, we have four women on the exec team and two men. Um, and we're a small company. So all of the excuses about like, but I'm small or this or that, like it can be done if you focus on it. Um, one really tangible example is um, my CFO hire, for example, is someone I hired, uh, Jerry Rice, uh, who started with us in February. And I had been looking for a CFO for over a year. 
Uh, one, one of the reasons like I held out that long is just like, I wanted to find the right person for the role and I wasn't finding that. Um, but you know, but over a year is a long time to go to find the right person. And I'm fortunate that I found that person in, in a woman leader as well. Uh, but I really think that you have to put a priority on looking for uh, diversity in your leadership team because it has such an impact on the wider organization that they can see someone like themselves or that they can identify, you know, visually is one way, but just, you know, behaviorally with someone on in a leadership position is really, really important. It has a cascading effect on the organization. So you talked about, you know, hiring a, a CFO, a female CFO. Um, you're a CEO. You held executive leadership roles throughout your career. Um, we more, need more diversity in those executive ranks. So were there obstacles that you faced that you had to overcome? Like, like, like what stories can you share with others that are, you know, inspirational or like, you know what, but this is how I handled it. And this is how I got to where I wanted to be. Yeah, I think that's a good question. There were lots of things. I think um, at Datto, once I, you know, was in a more leader a leadership role at a larger company, um, I took the opportunity. I, I, I wanted to take the opportunity to increase the diversity at Datto, and I was in a position to be able to do it. But it seemed overwhelming, right? Which I think a lot of people are in that position. They're like, well, yeah, I want, you know, to increase the stats and, and the diversity, but like, oh, it's so far from here. Like one point or five points seems like hard. And um, they get overwhelmed really easily. And I think it's easy to get overwhelmed and go kind of throw your hands up. Like I said, avoid it, right? Like find an excuse why, you know, no, I can't, I can't possibly do this. Uh, and so I just decided to start small. Um, so some examples at Datto, for example, uh, I, I was a leader at Datto and I wanted to go to the Yale's Women Leadership Program. Uh, a friend of mine, um, you know, got found the information and I'm like, oh, we should go together. We're both kind of leaders at Datto. Like, let, let's go together. So we went to HR and it was expensive, right? I mean, it's not cheap to go to the leadership program at Yale. And, they were, and, and there was a discount. If you got like five people to go it was, you know, 20% off. So I was like, okay, if I get five people to go, we get this discount, you know, like, can, can we go then? And they were like, sure. So I'm like, okay, five people, it's better than no people, right? Um, so that's what I mean by start small. We started, we went to the inaugural Yale's Women Leadership Program in 2016. And by the time I left Data, over 50 women had gone through that program because wow. we'd sent women every quarter after that. And I just made it a priority. So that was like one small thing, but then, you know, over time it accumulates and it becomes like a part of the institution to do that behavior and to foster that leadership uh, amongst that group. Uh, one other example was parental leave. So I also was like a leader. I wasn't an executive at Datto at the time, but I was a, a VP and I wanted to improve our parental leave program because it was getting kind of competitive in terms of a hiring at a tech company and Datto was trying to grow. And there was a lot of discussion just in the industry in general about needing uh, more competitive like parental leave programs. But Datto was still small. I mean, we're not Google. So we were in Google. So I was trying to figure out like, well, how are we gonna compete with all of these offers that these other candidates like great talent is getting? Um, and so I, I, I just assembled a group 
I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to pick people. Uh, I'm going to pick people who know what they're doing. So I chose someone from the people team who understood the policy. I'm like, I'm going to choose people who are influential in the business and who can help me persuade the executives to do this. So I assembled some of those folks on the team and then just some interested parties. And we came up with a proposal. We ana analyzed like how much would this cost the business to extend our parental leave? What would be the right amount to, to extend it by? Um, and had to go through a lot of uh, discussions with the exec group because there was some, you know, there, there was some discussion and debate to be had, but ended up extending um, our parental leave to 16 weeks for both parents, um, totally paid uh, by Datto and then, you know, the combination of whatever state uh, state is, is giving um, and, and implemented that policy, uh, which then extended to a ton of people. So like, again, a small change, right? It's like one policy, but then that opens the door to others who have similar needs or, or, or other things that they're thinking about to be like, oh, oh, this is possible. Like things can change. This is how you do it, right? There's a path for folks to get their grievances or to get their wants um, expressed and then like resolved. And they see that that's a possibility. So I think it inspires a lot of other people to embark on other small changes that, again, they add up. All right. So what has been like the, the biggest challenges or surprises as a CEO? Oh, yeah. I was thinking about this. Uh, I was going to tell you how easy it was. <laughs> <laughs> you were warned, I think you said earlier in the conversation. Watch what you ask for because you might get yes, it. Yes. <laughs> I, I came in. I think I was lucky. I mean, I'm not easily surprised, I guess, because of all the experiences I've had. I, there's always things that happen and I'm like, oh my God, really? Uh, so I'm not never surprised. Uh, but um, yeah, I came in with a, a healthy apprehension for what to expect from the role, just given some of my mentors and, and the conversations I've had in the past leading me to here. I wasn't like over the over the moon or I didn't have this kind of glamorous view of what a CEO role was going to be, which I think helps me not feel like there's been many surprises or, you know, uh, gotchas in the role. Definitely, there are things that are challenging. Um, continuing to run a remote company as we scale, it, it's something that like you, you never stop working at. So that's been like definitely a, a surprise in terms of how much energy it takes and how much it changes as you're growing and you have to kind of keep up with it. Uh, and then I've hired a lot of leaders since I joined as well. And so that's been like hard work. I'm not sure it's been a surprise so much. It's just like, it's hard work to find the right people. Um, and, and then to make sure that they're all working well together uh, is, is I'm fortunate we're in that place now. Um, and I don't take it for granted any day because it was definitely um, a challenging, a challenging sort of year, year and a half getting to that place when I first started. All right. So you mentioned, you know, continuously hiring and regardless of market conditions, whether it's a competitive market or if it's, uh, you know, a market where, you know, there's uh, layoffs or something like that like top tier talent always has choices and options. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what do you find? Like, what are the, the, the jobs that are hardest to hire for? Yeah, I think um, leadership roles are definitely the hardest to hire for no matter what discipline uh, you're in um, because of the cascading effects and the impact that role has across the organization. You're really hiring someone to do their job right in that discipline and to be a role model for everyone else in the organization. And that is a hard, hard mixture to get right um, a lot of the time. So that leadership hires are definitely the hardest. All right, how do you manage stress? 
Um, so going back to music, art, and soccer, <laughs> those are those are definitely my three ways to manage stress. I still play the violin. Um, I just went to a bunch of uh, music camps with my kids this summer, so uh, definitely uh, still very active there. It's still stress relieving to just get out my violin and play in a group, um, for sure. Art also, I recently got back into stained glass, um, which is you know kind of meditative when you have to like completely dedicate your focus to, to what's going on in front of you and to you know, cutting the glass, not cutting yourself uh, and all of those things. And then soccer, I still play soccer. Uh, so physical, any sort of physical activity, if I could just get out for a walk, it's awesome. Um, but I'm on a, a soccer team uh, three seasons out of the year being in Massachusetts uh, winter. I don't, I don't venture out, but, uh, and I don't like indoor soccer, but um, three seasons out of the year, I'm on, on the soccer field. Very cool. All right, three apps you can't live without. So generally, I try not to be on my phone. So mm -hmm. this is really hard and really boring answer. Slack, Asana, and Gmail. And then otherwise, <laughs> I try not to use any apps. My kids are always saying, Mom, you have like no apps on your phone. Like I have no games. I have nothing fun. It is like I really mm -hmm. try to limit it because I think our attention is so divided these days. Uh, it's like one more thing. And I, I, I just want to be present. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. And <laughs> you'd be shocked that that's usual answers I get like Slack mm -hmm. and email are like the top two. So yeah. it's just like, it's so true. Um, all right. How about, uh, well, th this is something I learned from another podcast I listened to with, with you as a guest. Mm -hmm. So do you listen to podcasts at 1.75 X speed? I I do. I think 1.5 is like the slowest speed I can listen to a podcast, even like a playback of a Zoom or, you know, something I'm trying to catch up on at work. Uh, 1.5, right. 2. Yeah, yeah, definitely my speed. Yeah. So so I, I love Audible and I listen to it, you know, coming to the office and going home and long trips, whatever. It's great. And I burn through a lot of books at one and I'm at 1.6 typically. Mm -hmm. Um so, and it just, it's amazing. It's like, this is awesome. It depends so, on the natural speed of the speaker. Yes, exactly. It just depends. Exactly. Totally, totally right. Exactly. Yes. So uh, any good podcast or book recommendations? Um, I'll just pick the last book I read since it's timely. I just finished The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Uh, and it's about a woman who, who dies or is in between uh, death. And she's in a library where she gets to kind of uh, undo her regrets and live her lives lives uh, again and see like what would have happened if she hadn't made that choice or hadn't turned down that thing or hadn't you know done that. Um, so I found it very interesting. Very interesting. Sounds like it'll be a like an HBO Max, Netflix type of movie, like series. As I though, was reading like it, I'm like, this is the perfect, this is going to be made into a movie or yeah, a, yeah. a show for sure. All right, Emily. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Uh, obviously all the great work you and your team at Synchro are up to and all the great advice. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.